Are you stuck? Why not try Magic and the Occult? Hey, it's worth a shot, right? I mean, what else is working these days? I have a brand new free guided meditation just for you. We've been cooking it up here at the lab, and it's really awesome. You can download it for free at start.magic.me. That is start.magic, M-A-G-I-C-K, dot M-E. And here's my challenge to you. If you can do that meditation for seven minutes a day, it's only seven minutes and change. If you can do that meditation seven minutes a day for seven days, how much can your life radically change? A lot would be my wager. Check it out. Take me up on that challenge. Let me know what happens. Start.magic.me. And we will also send you some emails of all the best podcasts and content that we've been putting out and introducing you to magic.me and all the newest stuff that we have cooking up at the site. For instance, our introduction to magic course. It's a great deal all around for the low, low cost of free start.magic.me start.magic.me. All right. I will see you there. Our guest today has been long in coming Carl Abrahamson, who is one of the most prolific editors and publishers of occult material in the world right now. He has done tons and tons of publications, coffee table books, documentaries, music, just a, a tremendously productive guy. His new book is called Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan, Infernal Wisdom from the Devil's Den. Let me tell you a little bit about it from the back of the book. With his creation of the infamous Church of Satan in 1966 and his best-selling book, The Satanic Bible, in 1969, Anton Zander LaVey, 1930 to 1997, became a controversial celebrity who basked in the attention and even made a successful career out of it. Who was Anton LaVey behind the public persona that so easily provoked Christians and others intolerant of his views? One of the privileged few who spent time with the Black Pope in the last decade of his life, Carl Abrahamson met Anton LaVey in 1989, sparking an infernally empowering friendship. Oh. In this book, Abrahamson explores what LaVey was really about, where he came from, and how he shaped the esoteric landscape of the 1960s. The author shares in-depth interviews with the notorious Satanists' intimate friends and collaborators, including LaVey's partner, Blanche Barton, his son, Xerxes LaVey, current heads of the Church of Satan, Peter Gilmore and Peggy Nadramia, occult filmmaker Kenneth Enger, LaVey's personal secretary Margie Bauer, film collector Jack Stevenson, and film historian Jim Morton. Abrahamson also shares never-before-published material from LaVey himself, including discussions between LaVey and Genesis Peorage, and transcribed excerpts from LaVey's never-released Hail Satan video, providing inside accounts of the Church of Satan and activities at the Black House, this intimate exploration of Anton LaVey reveals his ongoing role in the history of culture and magic. So let's get right into it. This was a super, super, super fun conversation on a topic that I really don't know a whole lot about, but Carl knows lots. All right, let's jump into it. Lovely 
lovely to meet you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. There is probably there are probably infinite topics that we could talk about from you know from Jen to Anton LaVey to literally every single part of the culture. So uh, there's a lot there. <laughs> but I have your I have your new book here, and uh, maybe why don't why don't we just get started just talking about that since, since that's what you have that's one of the 18 books you have out right now. Yeah. That you're current you currently just released in the last month. Yeah. Uh, so I I. I'm super curious. So I obviously have, you know, you can, Anton LaVey, everyone knows he's an inescapable presence and he's often the first person that people encounter when they first researching the occult. And of course he is the greatest best-selling occult author of all time by a long, long, long shot. Uh, and, and I think pro probably it's because he was, he just did not beat around the bush at all <laughs> and just went straight to it. But, um, I have never been super interested in Anton LaVey, to be perfectly honest, but this book looks really good and you obviously spent a lot of time with him and you have a very, very, a lot to say about him. So I'm curious, tell us about Anton LaVey and what your take on him is and, and your time with him. Right, right. Those are, are uh, major topics, but uh, the the thing is that, uh, as you say, he you can't really escape him because he's out there in the open. And today, I would say his presence is almost uh, on a mainstream level. You know, inclusion in American Horror Story, whatever that season was called, and you know the books are still selling, and and um, his iconographic face is, is uh, on t-shirts and it's just weird how that legacy can live on and he would be super happy of course and then you have this um uh legacy it's a very difficult word it's, you know could be charged with so many things uh, but i think that uh, what made me want to put this book together that of course had to do with the film that came before it it started out as a documentary film uh, that came out in 2019 and this sort of the impetus or, or the um, incentive for me to write that was that i had had over a period of say you know 10 years this growing um, premise inside me you know saying what the hell happened there you know because i went to meet him the first time in 1989 and we were sort of friends and met regularly up until his death in in 97 uh, and those were very meaningful visits for me it was this was the same time as i was doing a lot of uh, occultural let's call it occultural networking uh, and being very active in many groups and orders and you know currents whatever as you do when you're young um and I um, cherished those times, those moments uh, at the Black House and, you know, when we met. And I felt that he had given me something beyond uh, inspiration, you know, because you're always inspired by uh, father figures or mentors or whatever you want to call them. Uh, and I tried to figure out, whoa, um, was that a strategy on his side? Or, or So I decided to talk to some of the people I knew within the Church of Satan from back then. And they all had the same sort of um, vague feeling in a way. Yeah, he was absolutely you know, presenting stuff to us that was sort of um, not niched, but you know that he thought that we could enjoy based on a kind of intuitive resonance. Uh, and he was usually, as they say, right on the money. Uh, I was very interested in film at the time. That was my thing. And we, of course, talked a lot about film. And he sort of, I guess, you know, analyzed me in a way, seeing you know, how much does he know about film and what kinds of films does he like, you know, um, things like that. And the same thing 
thing happened then that when I talked to these first uh, group of people that I knew, I also branched out into people that I didn't know but at the time, but that I got to know and because they had also been at the Black House at this time uh, and asked them the same thing. Did you have this feeling that, that uh, there was things going on between the lines? And they all had that feeling. And then you could say, oh, it's just, you know, memory and this projection and this missing someone that you loved and, you know, things like that. Uh, but it seemed that he had a kind of an MO um, of uh, reading people. And if he liked you, he would be uh, giving you things generously, both overtly and also very much between the lines, um, uh, different things for different people. You know, so that was one kind of legacy that I felt that he consciously created. You have, you know, genetic legacy through kids and, you know, you have book legacy through the books he published and, and you can't really, when you're dead, you can't really control any of that, but you can live on, as it says in many wise texts, like in the brains and sinews of those who live on, you know, uh, whether they met the person or not, just this thing of memory and how memory is carried on. And it became an increasingly fascinating project. And I felt that after the film, uh, I had so much stuff because you have to edit out so much when you're making a film. And I still had those transcriptions. I said, you know, uh, pardon my French, but fucking hell, this is a great uh, material that needs to be uh, anthologized in the book form. And that's how that happened. Uh, and then, of course, I can also look back um, at um, some similar projects that I've made recently, like with Jen, for instance, there was the, the Sacred Intent book. And before that, there was the Change Itself documentary and the third and final spoken word album that we did. Um, and uh, it's also a kind of a summing up of a long friendship that was hugely, you know, uh, quintessentially beautiful and important to me, just like LaVey had been. And at the same time, in 2019, I made a film uh, about or a documentary uh, together with uh, uh, Kenneth Anger, who had also been a source of influence and a friend since also 1989. Um, so it was like, I guess this era for me is like, you know, I don't know, summing up in a way. Uh, and uh, I think it has to do with you come to a certain age, some would say it's like the Saturn returns. I've had two Saturn returns now or I'm right in it. So for me, it's a very good thing to, to start uh, looking through the diaries and see what patterns are repeating. What can I change? You know, now is a good time to do that. Interesting. And I really love that. That sounds that that sounds very much like Jen, you know, when, when you're talking about like how he was interacting with people and reading them and passing things on and one, one, one of the thing about one of the things that I always found about like a, a culture, a cult is it doesn't just mean a cult magic. It's like you meet these people and they pass on all of the stuff that influenced them. That's kind of a cult in the sense of the mainstream has forgotten it, but it's so, so important and and, you know, whether that's music or films or with LaVey, for instance, it seems like he was very much influenced by this kind of Jack London idea of being this, uh, you know, man's man out in the out in the world. And that I always found fascinating about him. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right also, uh, because sometimes it is the most 
useful things are between the lines. And you can know, you know, if you're a somewhat eloquent person, you can write a book and you can say that I believe that magic is this and this, you know, and basically we're, we're all trying to do that in some way. But the thing is that to um, have magical transmission in a way, it has to be done almost face to face or Jen's thing with the touching of hands. And for LaVe, it was very much, you know, sharing a space and him playing music and really changing the atmosphere. And then came like a, a wink or a smile or a gleam or just one sentence that sort of in a Zen kind of way wow. passed everything. Uh, and and um, you know that's so cool. Yeah, and when when you've had those experiences, uh, you, you and I have had them both. You know, I think it you come to a point um, where you are done filtering. You just you know feel that I have been given so much. Now it's time to finish the filtering and just give it back or give it forward rather uh, to to uh, the young ones in a sense uh, because it is very much a spirit that lives on and you can call it like you know uh, the Baros guys in axis or you could call it the lave you know satanic axis or the psychedelic robert anton wilson axis they're all axes uh, working more or less parallel uh, towards a um, strengthening of the individual's sense of the individual you know, encouraging individuation, uh, re almost regardless how you do it. You know, some people can be reckless, jump off a cliff that, like Jan used to say, and others can be very meticulously careful and, and uh, almost empirical in their work. Uh, and others are just Taoist free-floating. Or you can be like, like LaVey and many of those kinds of Satanists go very much into aesthetics. It's, very, it's a very aestheticized and aesthetic-dominated uh, uh, philosophy and magical system hmm. uh, where you make sure that your environment and your time also is filled with a maximum input of things that make a kind of... Um, resonance reverberation hmm. that maximized space time you can send out your charge that's really cool that's that yeah. that's interesting i I've, I've always been of the uh more like engineering type approach if i just want the technology that works but as you're saying that that makes and and having just known satanists that are very much like that I, that that makes a lot of sense particularly if you know you're in the in that in as we all are now in a home environment like a lot yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, and I think that that um, uh, it doesn't take a lot to understand how these things really work. You know, for most people who live in an apartment or one room or a, or a tiny apartment or a tiny house, just having one little corner or tiny space really uh, set aside for magic. You know, building your temple or or, uh, or again referencing Jan, try to alter everything in the sense that uh, whatever you do, whatever you find, make it something holy, something very special for you, and that thing will feed back just by your doing that, changing space and changing time. And for Lavey, and also I would have to say, a lot came from uh, Kenneth Anger, uh, who had this idea of the total environment parallel, or perhaps even earlier than Lavey, and and uh, collecting stuff very much and um, the aesthetic mind frame, uh, taking care of detail, making sure that everything's positioned well. And for an outsider who doesn't have the terminology, you could say that, oh, he's just you know uh, an old queen rearranging his things in a very meticulous way. But from a magical point of view, it's, you know, uh, moving this 
vintage picture of Clara Bow uh, closer to the vintage picture of Bella Lugosi in on your shrine in your home, which is painted and it's just like a shrine to old Hollywood. And things will happen. Those pictures will, ah. and you can, you know. Um, in a way, necromantically have a communication with them. It all depends on how much you want to feed back with your own creation. Fast, that's fascinating. I really, that's really, really interesting. It's making me just immediately think about yeah, how I could do this more on my own. Interesting. So, but, and, and there is something, I think there is something really satanic about that in, in a deep sense of one thing that always has impressed me about the satanic philosophy is that it's, it's so antinomian in the true sense in that it is going fixating purely on the material world in, in such contrast and just going like totally into just like surface appearance and glamour with like no substance. And I think that's actually really refreshing after in a sense, like because so many other occult traditions are like, what does it all mean? You know, <laughs> I don't think it's, it's entirely true according to the way I see it, because, um, it's um, always a, a difficult di dichotomy, you know, this thing with, you know, material versus spiritual. Uh, and I think that LaVey early on very much was super open, open minded and, and researched things. And, you know, he was friends not only with anger, but also with other telemites coming from the uh, from the Los Angeles team, uh, not as far back as Parsons, but certainly with Cameron and other people, uh, you know, uh, as uh, shockwaves after Parsons in a way. Mm. They were around and, and he was interested. And uh, in that research, also him coming from a kind of a carny background where you have cold reading and you have more like manipulation and sort of tricks and stuff, uh, stage magic. But he was very open minded. And, and aware of that um, applying a psychological terminology to these things can be more helpful than having constantly these uh, symbolic things where, you know, it's this demon Bart Sabel for this kind of working and da, 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 da. That becomes almost like a quagmire where you have to master a structure, you have to master a terminology. On the other hand, he chose the most controversial symbol of all, uh, or at least in this cultural sphere, Satan. Uh, but that he did knowingly, not because he worshipped some anthropomorphic beast, but because he knew it would make a dent in people's psyche. You have the evangelical Christians on one side, uh, and then the you know spaced out hippies on one side, and they all fe feared uh, this symbol. So it was a you know um, power packing punch that he had at exactly the right time. So it was became very successful, and that's exactly what he wanted. Then later on, you have this thing where it's it's all about. Uh, as you say, materialism, it's about the success. It's like um, someone called it quite brilliantly, Ayn Rand with pentagrams in a way. Uh, but it, there's more to it uh, than that because um, there was already an acknowledgement in um, the Satanic Bible, which was his first book in a sense, uh, of this dark force in nature. And already there you have something that is not... Uh, expressed through um, the natural sciences and em empirical background, the dark force of nature. Okay, so you can tap into this dark force. Is that the dark force that is uh, like the German romantics, nighttime and the full moon and, and wind howling and wolves howling? And that could be it. You know, that could be very evocative for a magical working. But there's also, you know, a very dark force of uh, nature 
uh, on a highway that's sort of decrepit and you have these asphalt flowers coming through the the uh, hard rock or the hard asphalt there's a lot of power in that simply natural force that can break down basically anything given the opportunity mm. that's why i think that gardening is ultimately huh. the human triumph and also failure because you can you can do as much weeding and you know <laughs> gardening as you want uh, turn your back and it will be overgrown right away so that's the dark force of nature it's a force so powerful and he decided to call that uh, a satanic energy because it does go against the grain of the herd trying specifically have the human herd or humans survive whereas in fact we won't we know our lifespan is, is you know, it's uh, maybe 70 years. You don't know. It could be 50, it could be 80, it could be 100. Uh, but we don't know. We know that it's final. And as for humanity as such, it seems that we're going against some kind of extinction or at least weeding. Uh, and that's also part of this dark force of nature. And then my, my question to myself is, is this necessarily spiritual? Well, you could say that it's ensouled. I would say that it's ensouled. Maybe other, uh, you know, Church of Satan or LaVey wouldn't agree, but he definitely acknowledged that there's more to it than simple causal manipulation of this and that, or uh, a manipulation of someone uh, that makes that person do what you want, as in, you know, carny magic or stage magic uh, or hypnotic or mesmerism, that kind of thing. Uh, he believed in the power of magic, meaning that you do something that is out of space, out of time, that creates a kind of a butterfly effect that sort of uh, flutters on and that will have an effect. And however, how do you describe that? We don't know how to explain that or describe that fully. Uh, he was very much of a, uh, he had a psychological bent. He was a self-professed Freudian. He loved Jung. He loved Reich. Um, and you know Reich well, as you, as you wrote for The Tennis Wolf. He loved Reich. Uh, and people tend to forget that. There are so many possible models to explain you know, the occult. What is it? It's like philosophy and ancient primal science existing in the dark. Then it comes out into the open and it becomes something else. It's constantly morphing. Uh, however, how I think that it works is through um, our own interpretation of what we see and what we interpret with our senses. So, for instance, if you're in a room and you're dressed completely neutral, as is the other person, and that person says, uh, I am a Christian you will project a whole lot of things on that person, even though he might look just like you or be dressed just like you and have no deviant behavior, as Christians often do. But anyway, the, that um, uh, and he will project uh, things on you because you say, I'm Jason, uh, I have a podcast about occultural things. Then you will immediately be branded as that because you have yourself. Story of my life. <laughs> Yes, I'm very aware. <laughs> but for instance, if someone came in and he said, instead of he might be a Christian, but he says, I'm a Buddhist. But then during the conversation, you realize that he has tricked you or something. Then that creates a kind of a, a different ball game. And you might be, you know, vindictive and try to, you know, some shenanigans with him. And it might become very interesting. What I'm trying to say is basically that, that, um, he believed that all of the hocus pocus had a very beneficial cathartic effect like a psychodramatic effect you know the rituals they did early on in the church of satan um, 
it was always explained in a kind of psychological language, uh, modeled according to um, things like having a cathartic effect, uh, having a uh, cleansing of a traumatic experience by some kind of scapegoat ritual, uh, by having the, you know, almost kitschy nude uh, altar lady uh, in this black room for for uh, men to ogle and for women to admire or think that oh this is so so kitschy in a way but no matter what it has an effect he knew how to create that effect um, in mainstream culture but also in the ritual chamber and in the ritual chamber there was no um uh, pussyfooting around that it was for real there, there was, and that, that's what I mean it's like he believed in interesting magic. yeah I was going to ask you because I, it seems like starting with Dion Fortune and then into this era it was such a rhetorical and marketing technique to use psychological psychological language around magic because it was much more acceptable but what I was going to ask you is you know did they believe it was only that or much more and I think you, you just you just answered that yeah. so that's very interesting yeah, and I mean, it's, it's also a hyper-individualistic group, almost uh, paradoxical, you know, a group for non-joiners in a way. Uh, however, I know for a fact that he believed in magic and many of the people, for instance, that uh, are interviewed in the book and in the film, I asked them that sort of standard question, uh, do you think that he believed in that or do you think that he saw things strictly materialist? And, you know, most of the people reply that he definitely believed in, in something uh, between the lines, in this dark force of nature, in in psychology as the core, but there were so many things that are still unexplained, uh, perhaps even inexplicable for us. And perhaps that's the way it's supposed to be, because when things become too much in the open, too much dissected in a way, things lose their poetry. That's the thing. When it's mysterious and just beautiful, beauty can't be dissected, for instance. Yeah, never, never reveal your pinnacles, as I think. E. E. Remus, the chaos magician, said at one point, or somebody said that. That's so interesting. Uh, just everything you're saying is is awesome. He sounds like an awesome person to spend time with, uh, oh, first and foremost. We all are. I hope so. <laughs> but um, thank you. And you are as well. Uh, I was going to ask you, I'm curious how the satanic panic played out in Europe because I'm of the age where I grew up like Satanism I feel is so much more resonant than anything else in the occult world in America because of it because we're such a crazy Christian country uh, deep down and and I think like for instance when you go to England they're very much about like Austin Spare and Kenneth Grant and like this very kind of like English eccentric thing but and that really just does not play here uh, at all outside of maybe hipsters in New York maybe you know and and but for Americans for the average American the occult is very real in the sense that there's like this metaphysical war between Jesus and Donald Trump and Satan and it's like and real and yeah so so Americans think this stuff is real which is you know which is uh, not the case at least in my experience certainly with with people from England or Europe where they're very much post Christian very cynical very you know so it's so for that reason it has such a different resonance here and I'm, I'm of the age where I grew up in the satanic panic so like I was in grade school and cops were coming in and telling us that satanists were going to abduct us into vans and all this insane stuff none of which was true and of course there was the whole era with 
uh, you know, that famous, what was it, Zena LaVey and Michael Aquino were on Geraldo's show defending themselves and people, including LaVey, right, were like under, their lives were in threat. Like I some remember reading that they had to spray paint the windows of that house black and Zena would have to crawl under the windows as she went past them because people would shoot into the windows. So it was such an insane time here and it's kind of has unfortunate resonances with now because now in America we have this whole like QAnon mass insanity and it's very similar, which is a little worrying, but I'm curious, what was, was there any, I know obviously there was what happened with Jen, but I'm wondering, I just don't, cause I don't know the history. I mean, what was the resonance of this period in, in, on the continent? Uh, was it, was it different than the U S or was it similar? I don't, I don't know. I, th I think both actually, uh, the way I remember it, because I had, um, uh, I, I sort of matured throughout the 80s. Like in the early 80s, I was just like a little sponge taking in industrial music and all these intellectual and magical references contained in this music and, and uh, uh, community in a way, uh, and sort of joining Topi and, and working with that. Uh, in Europe, the Satanic Panic uh, was sort of from the mid 80s and onwards, perhaps slightly earlier. Huh. And uh, of course, no internet. So you had these. Um, uh, newsletters and, and tiny fanzines in a way like Pagan News and uh, the IOT had Chaos International, which was a great, great fanzine magazine. And, you know, there were other things also. And slightly later, I created the Fenris Wolf. And, you know, there, there was this um, intellectual culture going on, which also contained news, right? So uh, Sweden, totally secular everything's fine everything's okay i had no problems ever until i, I like really stuck my chin out in a way f with with mainstream media what, what happened there not to de not to derail you but not to derail you but I'm, that sounds like a like some a yeah. good story potentially okay great 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 uh, but but basically nothing happened in sweden in the uk it was a different story because they were all uh, felt like you know these um instigations of insane conspiracy theories and this and that and what happened uh, very concretely was that uh, there were um, at that time beautiful occult bookstores there was one called uh, the sorcerer's apprentice i think in leeds which was like the hub for the chaos magicians and they published some stuff they had stuff vandalized you know like shop windows mm. and i remember reading about that in pagan news for instance and so that was very hands-on and anti uh, antithetical violence uh, towards anything empowering individuals at this time. Uh, in the US, I think it was uh, parallel, but slightly delayed. It, it took a different form, though, because in the US, everything is so media saturated. You have the talk shows and you have Geraldo and you have, you know, these weird tabloids filled with fantasy and, and all of them could point their finger at something so vague as Satan, meaning, you know, the, the anthropomorphic uh, monster. Uh, there was there were problems, definitely. And that was one of the reasons why you, you could say that the first phase of the Church of Satan was from the 1966 up until the mid-70s. That was the heyday, glory days, uh, success, exposure, etc. Then it got a little bit tiresome. LaVey said that I want to enjoy and be consequent to my philosophy and just be selfish and, and egotistical and enjoy myself. Life enhancement. Um, so he did that. And then when it turned into the 80s, I would say that there was kind of the third and final phase entering where he got so much 
you know, Slack, and he didn't really have the power to to muster up to be on yet another talk show, yet another radio show with morons. Why would he be? Uh, so uh, I think that he let that. Uh, uh, you know, come onto the lap of a younger generation, perhaps, but it didn't really amount to anything because it, they were like, you know, rabid dogs in a way, just yap, yap, yapping away. And it led to, you know, th things being uh, thrown at the Black House, uh, which is, you know, right in San Francisco on California Street. And they had to put up uh, like uh, a fans, barbed wire fans, and, and uh, sometimes have, uh, as you said, like things for the window. And uh, at some points, people actually shot at the house. I don't think it was for a lo any longer period of time. LaVey also always had great... Um, contacts great communication with the local police hmm. you know, he had actually worked as a photographer for the san francisco police department in the early 60s and that sort of lingered on and he was always very open he was very loved in the neighborhood even though it was weird they had known him for such a long time from you know when he had a lion as a pet at home it was just a, a as you say kind of an eccentric person kind of he was very eccentric and, <laughs> um, so after that it was you know, curtains down, you know, people, there was no um, uh, social, you know, extra extravagant, you know, uh, flamboyant social living as had been before. Uh, what happened was that uh, from mid uh, 80s up until he died, it was basically kind of uh, a regimen where uh, you met at the black house and you went out to dinner and, and then went back to the house and basically spent the night at the house watching movies listening to music talking but there was never really any um uh, extroversion meaning participation in events and and things like that he had done his share already and i think in part i wouldn't say all of it, but in part, it had to do with that uh, potential danger of just being around and being a controversial, uh, famous slash infamous figure in a, in a culture that was so antagonistic and irrationally so. Because it was never about, well, is Satan real? Da, da, da. It was just, as you have now with QAnon, it's completely irrational, emotional uh, compensation from uh, nitwits, basically, that could be not could be that are dangerous yeah yeah do you, so where do you do you see that where do you see the parallels between then and now do you feel that it's exactly the same or do you feel like we're in a different different situation with things now yeah well i would say that the paradoxical thing is that uh, it's the same but it's not the same it's the same in the sense that it's the same kind of people who are attracted to these you know uh, uh weird leaders or cultic um people who want to you know shepherd their sheep uh into um nowadays much worse things than ever before back then it was basically religious you know they're saying that this is bad and we have to stop this stop the occult you know uh, make a cross over the pentagram and that that would be enough you know uh, but today it takes on completely different forms but the mechanics and the dynamics are exactly the same as then but as we can see the effects of that when you sort of strip away the psychotic christianity and instead you know put politics in there then it becomes dangerous it's exactly the same mechanics uh, but um, it has a different kind of effect because it really doesn't matter if people are you know um, speaking in tongues in a rural church and you know condemning satan and the satanists that really doesn't amount to anything or, or not much 
But if you have uh, a whole crew uh, creating uh, political ruckus and trying to impose, uh, you know, undemocratic behavior and effects, then that's a different story. But it's essentially the same. It's people using things as symbols, but in a kind of black magic sense to simply to increase their own power greedily uh, at the cost of those who are actually helping them forward. Yeah, and it's kind of... It is sad, and it's kind of crazy. I'm thinking as you're saying that that you were mentioning earlier that this the the original one was before the internet, and you would suspect that access to the internet would give people better access to information, but it's been completely the opposite. Was just allowed yes. people to just you know go into total psychosis. But so what what happened when when you said that you got a bit of you, you put your head above the trenches a little bit. Well, well, you know, it was uh, was uh, this was early '90s then. I'd been going back and forth and and met him uh, almost uh, well every year um, as as often as I could. And uh, I had uh, bought the rights for the Satanic Bible and translated that into Swedish. That didn't come out until I think '95 or '96. But before that, I was very open about this, just as I had been and still were. Uh, was with uh, Topi, for instance. I'd always shared information freely. I'd been on you know Swedish TV talking about sigilizing uh, wow. in, I don't know, 1987 or something. And, and it was just, then it was weird. But the, when it became satanic, it was a different story. And there was a piece, which was actually, when you read it, a great piece. But it had some pictures of me being youthful, you know, posing with some kind of wand. It looked kind of, I don't know, intimidating in a youthful way. Uh, and that created some havoc in, in some weird people. And it was nothing. It's just like people, uh, you know, death threats on the phone, stuff like that, but nothing ever happened. And it's just, it, it taught me a lesson too, in the sense that, you know, what am I really selling? And is it worth that agony of having to go to the police and make a little report? Mm, not really. Uh, so I sort of cooled down. But on the other hand, a couple of years later, I did publish the Satanic Bible in Swedish and it sold out, you know, like, like hotcakes. Um, so uh, it's better to work and not be, uh, I don't like to be a spokesperson of anything mm. or anyone in a way. Uh, I like to recount what I have experienced myself. That's basically all I can uh, or should do. Interesting. Yeah, LeVay definitely kind of took a, if you'll, if you'll pardon the pun, he really like picked up his cross to walk with it there. Um, in this, and I, I think that he probably was the great marketing genius of Matt, even more than Crowley in a sense. And, and, and he, he made himself into a meme and, and that in, in a sense that guarantees his Im immortality in the same way that Crowley's immortality is guaranteed and hopefully Jen's immortality is, yeah. is guaranteed. Uh, but it, it, you know, I do admire with Anton, Anton because my entire career I've been trying to figure out just the right way to put it so that people will accept it or it's not, I show that it's not weird. And yeah, I actually just admire LeVay for being like, no, it's here's a pentagram, you know, it's just like completely hitting it on the nose and, and not trying to. And I, and I think people find that refreshing, actually. No, so I think that's still true, because it, it also it, we talk about, you know, memes and sort of this kind of culture we're living in today. You have this. Uh, slightly older uh, dichotomy which is very useful and it's this thing between signal and noise you know and and lave for me uh, and obviously for a lot of other people too was like pure signal you know they had some symbols in there but the symbols were part and parcel of the signal uh, and there was there's no uh, obf obfuscation actually there was one of his critiques against older uh, arcane occultism that is so obfuscated uh, 
for its own sake, you know, why would you need a symbol uh, for something that might have been threatening in, in medieval times, but it's not anymore? It's time to make up some some um, symbols or some methods that are applicable today that have that powerful effect because most of the uh, christian critique against whatever you know pagan wisdom or witches or wise women existed back then uh, was just their own repressed sexual fantasies taking monstrous forms you know that's we can easily see that back then it was a different story but that kind of repression um sort of uh, evaporated as human culture evolved into what we have today which might perhaps be even too liberal you know where are the taboos you know and and uh, yeah it's, it's no it's no no fun for occultists when nothing's taboo anymore there's there's nothing that, nothing to do point of view you know there's a great power in transgression yeah and i think yeah one, one of the uh, trends i prefer to call it a trend within uh, contemporary occultism uh, or magical philosophy whatever is the concept of of uh, babylon you know and you know well you know the de involvement and stuff like that but i would argue specifically coming back to crowley and crowley's writings about it is that it's not so much uh, you know a god that's evoked from the from the last card whatever it can be that too of course if you want to but it's merely uh, a symbol of transgression there's power in transgression and the nietzschean sense which crowley also adapted very much is that the power comes from when you overcome your own hindrances inside right so the big taboo throughout the centuries has been sexual uh, very much so during the first half of the 20th century also so how do you transgress and generate that power that comes from transgressing well you become honest you become honest about who you are sexually for instance or philosophically or or uh, break away from domineering parents whatever it is you know there's an insane amount of power in that and that's the power of transgression and that's what what crowley meant in his definition of babylon you know um, of course it's an attractive form with some voluptuous you know very sex positive young lady uh, breaking away from the patriarchy whatever that works as a babylonic symbol uh, but it could equally we equally well be the other way around you know someone who has been too liberally raised that goes into transgression into a more celibacy for instance there's the same kind of transgression just reverse and there's an equal amount of power and that's really the kind of um, what how i see the babylonic uh, formula in a way um and i can't remember now how we slid into this no that's great though i really love that i i will i i'll argue perhaps you know i'll perhaps controversially I'll, I'll argue that i think sex is not only still taboo but in a strange sense more taboo than ever and and what i mean by that is that obviously everyone in the world regardless of where you're from now if you have internet access you can experience every possible sexual activity you could possibly imagine for free at the same time though younger people particularly millennials and zoomers and younger people are having less sex than ever mm -hmm. to to a, a remarkable degree and that's certainly the case in america i don't know if that's the case in europe and so i think that there's a there's actually a repressive effect of having everything out in the open like now there's no as opposed to before where you know people were they were 
in a sense, sex is more taboo, but people are actually having sex. They're actually connecting with other human beings. Yeah. And there's that power of, of going against what you think your sexuality is perhaps and having new experiences. And, and that was so much a part of so much of a part of the fun for me of the occult in the eighties, nineties and early two thousands was that it was the wrong side of the tracks. It was yes, dangerous. Exactly. It was hidden. It was dark, you know? Yeah. So, so this, this is a problem here or a challenge because you, you are absolutely right. And the sense it's always been occult, right? It's always been hidden. It's always been underground. And I like, as you know, to have these uh, metaphors of the flowers and the garden and you know things grow underground what you see are the beautiful flowers but it won't flower unless they have solid roots in in you know moist dark blackness filled with toxic minerals mm. that are transformed alchemically into nutrition it's amazing uh, and if you, tr if you translate that into a, a kind of a human behavior or human culture uh, perhaps it's better that some things are occult and underground. And that's very, very difficult in a time like ours when everybody is in a way self-censoring themselves by flaunting themselves on social media. Hmm. You know, you present an image of yourself, how you want to be perceived, but that may not at all be what you actually feel. But you're more concerned about the reflection surface than about the real feelings. So it's a, it's a very problematic thing, I think. Um, and I do believe, again, taking, uh, you know, uh, jumping off from this transgressive thing is that this power, when people point their fingers on you saying that you're dangerous, whether you are or not, that's besides the point, but you can, in a way, profit from being regarded as the outsider, as the uh, dangerous one, as the threat. And another analogy that I like very much, uh, specifically when talking about, you know, the symbol of Satan, is that Satan is the immune system of the organism. You know, Satan hmm. presses where it hurts, where it's ill, because if the organism doesn't heal or fixes some kind of, uh, you know, surgery, whatever, then the entire organism is threatened. Huh. That's the satanic force pointing Satan's finger at, you know, you fucking hypocrites fix this stuff because this is insane. This is sick. This is, you know, uh, infected. And the healthy culture will, of course, fix that. They will listen and heed that, uh, you know, call it satanic, call it, you know, emergency, call it whatever. Um, but I do believe that that has been the function of every little culture that has become too um, repressed, too uh, dominant, too oppressive in a way. There will always be a rebellion. And that rebellion is ultimately what creates the health. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's interesting. I mean, like, as, as you, as you know, it's like Jen in the eighties and nineties was terrifying. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like the modern primitives, all of that, like, like people don't realize like how terrifying that was at the time. And now it's like everyone, yeah, you know, and, and it was interesting to see, it was so wonderful to see that suddenly there was so much interest and mass acceptance in Jen's work at the end of her life. And I was really glad that she was able to, to, to experience that. And, and I've also, I want to say, and your work is part of this. I'm, I'm amazed at how much receptivity and interest there is in this material. I, and I, that was not at all what I thought was going to be the case. I was hoping it was the case, but I figured it was, it was a lost cause and it's definitely not now. I think there's, it's, there's so much unbelievable, like an unprecedented level of interest in this material because now it's been made 
open. It's been made non-occult. And of course, but, and, but people are not only not afraid of it, I think they're very accepting of it. And, and because honestly, it probably is more intelligent and makes more sense than what they're being given otherwise. So, and I I think also it's, um, uh, this culture that we're living in is is so, you know, paradoxical or contradictory in a way too, because we have, as you say, a lot of access, but that doesn't, it's not the same as, you know, immediate integration of wisdom and insight, uh, quite on the contrary, because you become, the system becomes stressed and you can't see what's what. And if, if you have some kind of spiritual inclination or a magical inclination and you're moving in one direction, unfortunately, it seems that many young people, and it's always been like this in a way, they, they gravitate towards what's, uh, you know, difficult to interpret they don't go for what seems simple and and uh, accessible mm. and, and easy to understand because it's almost like there's a an inherent message there saying this can't be for real because i understand it hmm. you know, it's, it's a kind of a, you put people down and they have to have a system that's completely um uh, takes years to master you have to go through <laughs> yeah 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 i was like that for sure yeah at the end you might get a funny hat but what <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, so i think that that obfuscation and the too many symbols in the, on the spiritual path uh, may have been necessary in more you know oppressive times but i don't think that's the case and you know the satanic uh, bible is one example but also the psychic bible is another example someone who just you know uh, i mean that's an anthology but it's just like uh, here it is these were our experimentations and and it's not really too symbolic or too complex it's pretty straightforward i love that i love that the things that are usable um, are explained in a way that will make people inspired to really jump at it and yeah. to to work on it and that i think jen was smart you know talking about sigils all the time and all the time before jen uh Spare wasn't that well known. Grant was a little bit earlier on, you know, uh, but he was again very symbol heavy. He was kind of obfuscated too, weaving things in like Crowley did in way too much fluff, you know, way too much system. Uh, and then Topi came and just like an IoT also. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. do this and strip the, this sentence and then just, you know, jack off or do whatever <laughs> experience you have. And, you know, wham, that's magic. Yeah. And it really works and works for a lot of people and still works because it's like, you know, truly perennial techniques coming from many different cultures. Uh, and then, you know, moving like any other kind of philosophical insight or magical insight. But by Jen's thing was to, you know, hammer out the message uh, on and on and on and on. And of course, it takes, it takes um, uh, hold sooner or later absolutely that is not only susceptible but also receptive enough intelligent enough to receive definitely yeah i've been really um, i've been amazed at the response to that book too i mean as you know i spent five years working on that but it's it's been uh and i I, that was the second edition you know so so it had already already been worked on by the original editor in the whatever the early 90s so i think that but it went everywhere i mean i saw grimes tweeted that she had was reading it you know it's incredible so i think that i i really think that that book will have a tremendous influence going into the future and of course you you worked on it as well you know it's like i i feel like i wanted that book to be 
yeah. the next next to the blue brick Crowley book and the Golden Dawn Regardi book, then there's Psychic yeah, yeah, Bible. So absolutely, it belongs on the same shelf. Absolutely, and and I would say in terms of uh, Lavey on that shelf, I would put his two final books on that shelf, perhaps more so than the hmm. Bible. Uh, you know, there were uh, it was one called uh, the Devil's Notebook that came out in ninety two, uh, and then there was one published just after he died called uh, Satan Speaks, and they are non thematic. They're just filled with his essays, uh, very humoristic, very much like, you know, um, uh, Mencken or Ambrose Beers, kind of satirical, uh, bordering on cynic, but always, you know, hilariously funny, yet carrying a lot of signal, a lot of magical inspiration and concepts. He was such a creative magician. So I would put those books uh, together with with the uh, psychic bible and and you know the regardi tome and and crowley's first equinox you know these things right and many other things so, you know some pete carroll should be in there also yeah there have been many many good things over the years but but um um uh, yeah what's next yeah <laughs> well I, one of the thing one of the reasons why i've leaned so hard into podcasting is because as you know, it's like when you said earlier, when you're young, you run around and interact with all these kind of secret societies and groups, and then finally you think you're the only one, and then you meet other people who have, you know, all the same books, and there's just a meet, oh my god, we got to talk about this. So, and that the internet has kind of reduced that, and I, I remember in that time period really being in these occult spaces and having these converse like truly what felt like forbidden conversations and just being like so angry it's like you know it's like this is where all the intelligent people are and in, in comparison the rest of the world is so you know unevolved and and neanderthal in a way and if only people could get this and and that for me like you mentioned being at LeVay's house and that kind of just hanging out and watching movies. And there are these transmissions happening, some of which you're aware of and some of which you're not aware of. And you're just kind of absorbing by osmosis how someone lives their life, which is kind of the most important thing. And, you know, their influences and all that. But and, and so that that was kind of lost in the Internet era. But I think podcasts bring it back. And, and they make, in a sense, they make in, in an even better sense in a way because, it you know, I, I think probably 10,000 people are going to listen to this conversation. So Absolutely. I, I think you're absolutely right because there, there is uh, the, the farther further away we are from each other, the worse it gets in a way. So you can have, you know, yeah. very efficient, you know, tweeting back and forth or Instagram messenger or all these things uh, uh, or even a telephone call. But it doesn't give this kind of face-to-face -face interaction. And I, I don't think, of course, it's better to be to share the same space and because then you know there might be you know physical magnetic chemical things going on at the same time but at least this is a real conversation and it's kind of mind-boggling that you can be where you are and i can be where i am we're doing this in real time so, yeah it's like it's like we have sorcerers crystal crystal balls that we're communicating <laughs> it's beautiful. I, I do agree you know and then it's sort of um, and i also like very much that when people say that well you know it's an it's an audio only podcast well i always suggest that let's do video anyway mm -hmm. you know because it, it does create a different kind of uh, dynamic when you talk to someone than just like into avoid a screen yeah absolutely and but also even just on the 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 thinking it's audio only that forgets that when people listen to it they're people don't just listen to podcasts in the dark they're probably driving somewhere or they're on a subway or they're going about their day they're doing the dishes so they're surrounded by 
the world while they're listening to it. And I mean, how many, how many profound experiences have you had just listening to music on a subway or something like that, or on a drive? And I think it's the same with podcasts. It's it, people take it. The, the thing that people don't remember is that people don't consume podcasts on their computer as they do with video. They, they consume it while moving, interacting with the real world, which I think is really, really powerful. Other mediums outside of music are not like that. So I think there's something to that. And it's true also for, for uh, audiobooks. I haven't hmm. not really gotten into it yet, but my wife, you know, she goes on walks and stuff and listens to books like like she's currently listening to to the Lave book, you know. And it's so weird. I've listened in on it. To have it's basically, you know, like a professional actor uh, reading my book. And it's so weird to hear my own words <laughs> yeah. by someone else. But but anyway, uh, people like that a lot for the very same reason, you know, they can listen while they're driving, they can listen when they're walking. And um if people can't find the time to actually sit down and read heavy tomes of heavy literature, then, you know, it's much better that they listen to it. Yeah. Than not take part of it. At, at first, I, I mean, as you know, I mean, most of publishing is much, much more slanted towards audiobooks. They do much better than published books now. And at first I was very cynical about that, having just spent my entire life in the, the publishing industry and one, one faculty or another starting from working in bookstores. It's just part it, for me at first, it was like part of this slide into illiteracy, yeah. but maybe not. Maybe, maybe that's me being cynical. It's like, it's great yeah. that so many people more are consuming actual content that is not yeah. even the success of somebody like Joe Rogan. It's like that. Those are three hour long podcasts. They're not tweets or Instagrams. Yeah. And I think that's a really, really, really positive cultural development. And, and I don't, I, I'm the more I think about it, the more I'm amazed, I'm amazed I become about it actually. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's, it's uh, the human mind, the human language and the human voice, you know, conjoined. I mean, it's what we're, it's what we're evolved to do. You know, it's like, we're supposed to be talking to each other and not tweeting at each other. So yeah. interesting. Well, I wanted to ask you, there is in the end of this book, you have a dialogue between Jen and Anton LaVey and I'm that they talk a lot about music. Actually. I was really curious what you, were, were you around both of them while they were interacting or what was that like? No, no. Okay. It was a tape that, that, uh, Jen provided me with a copy of, uh, because, uh, uh, I don't know if you you know that story. I should mm -mm. tell the story of how all of this came about. It's all thanks to Jen, uh, and I'll try to to keep it uh, condensed. Then, then we can return to their conversation. Uh, basically, uh, when you're young, as I was at this time, active in Topi, uh, I loved music, so I wanted to have a band. Of course, you know my band was called White Stains, and the very first music that we recorded because we were kind of a, a psychedelic rock band at the time it was a song called sweet jane you know just like the lou reed song however this song was about anton lavey jane mansfield and their relationship uh, set <laughs> that's great that's great yeah and that that was the first record that ever came out with white stains and it was uh, i think it was even topi scan records or something and, and you know jen loved it and he said you know i have lave's address why don't you send him a copy and this was in 1988 and i said mm, absolutely because i was such a big anton lave fan in a way but for me he was this kind of untouchable you know i wouldn't say uh, uh, quasi divine, but quasi, you know, infernal uh, presence over there in another part of the world. Anyway, I sent the record and then I got a letter back from him, you know, uh, appreciating the initiative and making me a member of the Church of Satan because that was his shtick, you know, he handed people uh, memberships. 
and I was like mind blown and overjoyed, overjoyed, you know, overjoyed because and so that was in a way Jan's doing by just you know in the moment. Why don't you do this? And I did, and it turned out to be you know another lifelong friendship and an important mentorship or whatever you want to call it. So. Um, they had met while Psychic TV were touring. They were well aware of, of each other because they were both cont controversial figures. And Jen was very open-minded, you know, uh, meeting people like, uh, you know, uh, Kenneth Grant, basically an older generation, um, and, and uh, networking in the US, in Europe, uh, wherever. Um, and they met. And this uh, transcription, that's not their first meeting because uh, I think that was from maybe also from 88, but they had met sometime before that also. And that conversation was, I think, the evening before some psychic TV gig. So they start talking about that and they are, they are at the Black House. And uh, uh, one of the pet subjects of LaVey was this thing of bombastic music. And that doesn't necessarily mean uh, Beethoven, you know, where everything is crammed to the max with some kind of maximalism. It can also be bombastic music can also be kind of stripped. It just needs to have a strong emotional um, timbre, you know, a, a strong emotional uh, potency. And so they talk about that. And I find, you know, it's like uh, there are many instances where I want to be like a, uh, a fly on the wall. You know, one of those would be Jan and LaVey talking together. And in this sense, we have at least a little snippet where they talk about music. So I've, I just felt that I, I needed to include that in part because Jen was the one who uh, actually, again, made all of this happen in a way. And he's still out there as a phantom force, because if that hadn't happened, you and I wouldn't be here now talking either. Right. There you go. And it's the ultimate psychedelic uh, magician in a way, you know, creating new circles and layers and, you know, it's all moving forwards. Uh, and then I have to quickly interject with another brief story. Um, after that thing, we were friends. Uh, I had originally gotten to know about LaVey because of the Satanic Bible in, in occult bookstores in Stockholm, of course. But he was also present in Swedish men's magazines because they were still around at the time. And he was so syndicated these you know uh, stories from the black house of the naked ladies and it was just you know really kitschy and nice material um, and i'd seen that as a as a boy and as a young teenager and thought it was so cool <laughs> so, yeah life moved on i i published the satanic bible in swedish lave died they kept in touch with blanche and you know just life took over and then much much later i would say around uh, 2014, perhaps, some guy in Sweden uh, got in touch with me saying he had something he wanted to show me. You know, that's always intriguing. So I did. And it turned out that he had bought, it was a big collector of Laveyana that I didn't know about um, in Sweden. And uh, he had bought like the... Uh, uh, negatives and prints from an estate of a German paparazzo who had been stationed in Hollywood in the 50s and 60s. And he was the one who had taken all these photos that I had seen in those men's magazines that were the original sort of erotic crystallization images that made me sort of love all of this uh, for wow. many, many reasons. And then, so that's why I made this book with uh, those photos, California Infernal. And it's, it's all of these extremely cool pictures um, of them together and, you know, scenes from the black house and it's really unique material. Um, so it's in a way like this era and these images and the forces behind them came back to sort of bite me in the butt 
Uh, and that was actually the instigation that made me want to do the, the documentary, which started shortly after this book came out in 2016. So, you know, now perhaps I can um, leave it behind me. It's not that I necessarily want to leave it, but at least now I've sort of summed it up in a way that I can uh, move on because I've given it back or given it forward to people, uh, younger people who are uh, hopefully interested in this. I think so. So where can people find out, where can people find the latest, the Anton LaVey book and California Infernal and all the other books and projects that you work on? Yeah, I, th I think that the, the easiest way, specifically if you're in America, uh, and also taking into consideration how insanely expensive postage is now, I think uh, they go to the Great Beast, go to uh, the company beginning with an A and ending with a Amazon uh, and and uh, just uh, get them because they, they have, you know, uh, possibly the, the cheapest postage rates anyway. And they're all available still uh, California Inferno and the LaVey book uh, and uh, all of my other books too you know just look for my name I guess it's the best thing and is there, there are, do you have a central website or social media that I think you have a bunch of websites right yeah this the central one would be my website which is carlabrahamson.com it has all the links to all the other social media platforms and stuff and it's Carl with a C and Abrahamson with two S's Wonderful. Well, maybe we should put a bookmark in it for now, but I would love to have you back on the, on the show soon, for sure. Yeah, yeah, that was a good conversation. Thank you. All right. Hope you really enjoyed that. Check out Carl's stuff and definitely download the new free guided meditation from magic.me seven minutes a day seven days your life will radically transform start.magic.me start.magic.me i will see you in class